and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have with us somebody who is way smarter than I, who is going to be able to delve into some of the issues of the day and help us unravel many of the things that are going on right around us, but none other than Joyce Vance. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. We were having a conversation about complaints earlier uh, before we actually tuned in. So you doing good? You got anything you want to vent about before we get started? You know, there's a lot to vent about this week, but I think it's not very productive. Um, our favorite president used to say, uh, don't don't boo vote. Right. That's and right. I think that's that's true this week. That's right. Well, look, we our show is unique because we start each episode by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And so I want you to walk us through the arc of your career to the point where you were able to be the expert that you are today. Um. You know, it's it's not super interesting in the sense that it's the story of of lots of federal prosecutors across America. I went to law school at the University of Virginia, went to a um, really wonderful but but typical large uh, law practice in the District of Columbia, um, moved to Alabama to get married, of all things, and um, went to an, another a large law firm in Alabama, again, a really great firm but wanted to do public service. And so I ended up joining the United States Attorney's Office in Birmingham, Alabama in 1991. I was a line prosecutor in the criminal division. It was more responsibility than um, any 30-year-old ever should have in our world. But fortunately, I had really good training and, and really good mentoring. Um, and so I, I spent a, a lot of time, I spent a decade doing that work ended up moving into our appellate division and then became the United States attorney um, early in the Obama administration. And I guess the bookend for that is that I resigned from DOJ the night before Donald Trump was sworn in, thinking that I would have happy retirement playing in my garden and knitting. And it didn't quite work out that way. No, it, it definitely did not. <laughs> I want to hop in and talk about some of the things that are going on around the country, like this FDA case. What is it about and what does it mean? And how can one judge basically dictate the policy for an entire country? Well, those are a lot of questions all tied up into once because this is a lawsuit that really has in many ways an unprecedented result. Look, here's the state of play and where we are right now. This decision out of the Amarillo Division of Texas by Judge Kaczmarek, this is not a final resolution of the Mifepristone lawsuit, the lawsuit that uh, purports to make it very difficult for women in America to get medication abortion from this point on. This is what's called an injunction. And so the question right now is what happens while the lawsuit is in play? Will the rule continue to be the current one where the FDA has given approval to Mifepristone? Or will the court take this unprecedented step of banning Mifepristone, blocking its sale, while the lawsuit is ongoing. This is really unprecedented because injunctions are meant to preserve the status quo during litigation. So nobody's rights are changed while the courts are deciding an issue. But that's not good enough um, for the judge in Texas who has ruled in this case. And you're right to note that he has entered an unprecedented nationwide injunction. Nationwide injunctions aren't unprecedented. In fact, they've been used and, and they were used several times during the Trump administration to block things like the Muslim ban um, was one of the early incidents. But again, a nationwide injunction, which isn't something it's it's not something that you find in, in rules of court or in the case law, 
any injunction has an impact typically just on the parties in front of the court or in, in that area. But a nationwide injunction is something where a party is trying to block the federal government from putting a law or a policy or a regulation into effect. And so by the very nature of that request, it has a nationwide impact. And that's that's unusual. It's it's, I think, remarkable to see it used here again, not to keep a policy from going into effect, but to take something that's been on the market for 20 years and pull it off. Yeah, that's a lot of power that this judge believes that he is asserting. But I have a, a lot of faith that that this won't stand or or last long. Maybe I have too much faith in our appellate system. One of the questions that when I was preparing for this interview that I wanted to ask you, and I'm, I, you said don't boo vote, which ties into this next question. I think that one of the when you look back at it, replacing Harriet Myers with Justice Alito uh, and replacing Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas are probably two of the most significant moments in the history of our federal judiciary. I think number three, though, is the election of Hillary Clinton uh, or election of Donald Trump. Help people understand how the Trump judicial appointees are reshaping uh, this country and why not electing Hillary in 2016 is probably the most harmful thing that voters could have done to the federal judiciary. Right. So, you know, Republicans have always done a better job of convincing their voters that they should sort of hold their breath and and vote for a candidate that they don't love for president because of the impact it has on the Supreme Court. And we see that play out with the Trump election. It's almost painful to go back through this history here, right? Because we know Merrick Garland is nominated to replace Justice Scalia after his unexpected and, and untimely death. And what do Republicans say? They say, no confirmation of Supreme Court justices during a presidential election year. And they actually hold up Merrick Garland. Everyone expects that he will be confirmed in the lame duck session after Hillary Clinton wins. And then Hillary Clinton loses and Merrick Garland is not confirmed. And we get Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, the first of the Trump picks. Then we get the second Trump pick. And, um, you know, I won't belabor the Kavanaugh process. I think we all recall that that was fraught, but Kavanaugh, too, gets confirmed. And and then sort of the chaser on all of this is that after voting has actually started in the 2020 election, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away. She is replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, who is confirmed while voting is ongoing. The rank hypocrisy there of Mitch McConnell refusing to give Merrick Garland even the courtesy of an up or down vote because it was a, quote, election year. But having Amy Coney Barrett confirmed after voting had started, there is no way of reconciling that that, uh, sort of conflict. And and I think McConnell said it best when he said that getting Supreme Court justices on the bench was the most important task in front of him. That's what he did. He's done it incredibly well. So now we have a 6-3 uber conservative majority on this court. That's the end of abortion. That's possibly the end of same-sex marriage. Lots of other rights. Definitely the end of affirmative action. Well, you know, I am sad to say that I think that that was inevitably coming anyhow, even with a 5-4 split on the court. You're absolutely right. Affirmative action will be over with this court. Um, And and frankly, lots of other rules that, that we, I think, take for granted that protect us. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a dissenting opinion in Shelby County, which is the big voting rights case. 
And she said something that really matters. She said, what the majority here is doing, it's like deciding you don't need to use an umbrella anymore in the middle of a rainstorm because you're still dry. And what we're seeing the court do is they're throwing away the umbrella that protects us in a lot of different situations. And I think we'll be much worse off because of it. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Let's talk about President Biden and the judiciary. Um, I know you and I both have an affinity. My boss actually was a U.S. attorney. Uh, when Janet Reno was the AG, um, that's a long time ago. I'm it sorry. is, but I'm sad to say I was an assistant U.S. attorney then, and I, too, worked for Miss Reno. She was awesome. She is like, it's, I can't, somebody needs to write more about her. She was just an awesome personality during a time where, there weren't a lot of women in positions like that. And she did a damn good job. So we'll work on that. Maybe that can be your next book. Let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about Joe Biden and the judiciary. Is he confirming jurists or uh, the judiciary fast enough? Um, I would argue probably not as fast as he could. We just talked about Mitch McConnell. And how would you grade this administration's record on the judiciary? So I think they've done a great job, but I have a caveat. The great job is they've gotten judges on the bench, both district court and courts of appeals, really quick. They were prepared for this out of the gate. They're getting folks confirmed and they're diverse. They're diverse in lots of different ways. There are you know, people in courts who are the first person who's gay to be on a court. Lots of black nominees, lots of Asian nominees, lots of people who have backgrounds as federal public defenders, yes. which is different from That's the traditional new. prosecutorial bent. Right. right. I love everything about these nominations. But here's what I don't like. And, you know, Bakari, you're from South Carolina, so you understand this like I do. If you live in a state that has two Republican senators and if they refuse to turn in what's called the blue slip, it's this courtesy mechanism that lets senators essentially tell the White House, I can't really support this nominee of yours. And, and it used to be that it was used rarely and for good reason. But now it's simply used across the board. So in Alabama, we have um, two federal district judge mm -hmm. slots open. Both of them were previously occupied by black jurists. And neither one has been filled yet because the senators won't turn in blue slips. I think it's time for the Biden administration to abrogate the use of the blue slip and confirm for those seats while there's still time. We had a blue slip situation with our U.S. attorney here in South Carolina where Lindsay would not 
sign the blue slip and therefore um, Tim would not sign the blue slip. And there was a big behind the scenes scuttle, but with a few members of our delegation and uh, um, my, my senator from Illinois, who's chair to this year? Uh, Durbin. Durbin. Yeah, Durbin. Um, the great senator from Illinois. Shout out to Illinois to the breaking news today. They just actually got the DNC to come. Um, so that's actually big news for the city of Chicago. Since this is your bailiwick, I want you to break down the state of play uh, with respect to the Trump indictment in New York. And then one very specific question that I've noted here that I wanted to ask you directly is why would um, why would the federal government stop or pause an investigation into this matter um, and yet this Manhattan district attorney bring those charges? Yeah. So those are, I think, the questions that are of the moment, right? Alvin Bragg's indictment of Donald Trump um, involves one charge that gets repeated over and over again in multiple counts. It involves, Which normally is not a felony. Well, I, let, let me just sort of typify that. There are charges, an assault is a great example. A simple assault is a misdemeanor, mm -hmm. but it becomes a felony under certain circumstances. This statute is very similar. Creating a false business record in the state of New York is a misdemeanor, but if you do it with the intent to defraud in connection with the commission or the concealment of another crime, then it becomes a felony. Yeah. And this is a bread and butter charge for this office. And, and they explain it pretty well, um, I think, in the press conference following the indictment. They're New York. They're a financial center. These sorts of crimes have consequences and, and they prosecute them a lot. I think that this is something like the 30th indictment that Bragg has brought in his first year in, in office under this statute. And so when you think about the context that this fraud was allegedly committed in, because I think it's very important to say that Donald Trump, like any other defendant, is cloaked in the presumption of innocence until he's proven guilty. But the allegation is that this was done to conceal a conspiracy regarding the 2016 election. And that conspiracy was to prevent information about Donald Trump from becoming public. He had just gone through this real debacle with the, the release of the Access Hollywood tape. Lots of women's groups and, and evangelicals and other people are up in arms, and they realize that information about him having had an assignation with a porn star would be damaging. And so it's in that situation that the payment to Stormy Daniels that forms part of the allegations and the conspiracy are made. I view it as a, as a significant charge. Um, we will have to see how the DA's office plays it out because under New York rules, they get away with not putting very much information into the indictment. And we'll learn more in the coming weeks. You read the statement of facts and it's eh, it's a little bit there, but the indictment has absolutely nothing there, which makes it as, a, as a, I do criminal defense work all the time. It makes it very difficult to even prepare your case uh, as you are waiting for discovery to come. So why would the why would the district attorney, or excuse me, or United States attorney in that district kick a case such as this or choose not to pursue it? Right. So. It's important to say that we don't know for certain, but we do know some things from the reporting. We know that after Michael Cohen was indicted and pled guilty in an indictment that identified Donald Trump as individual number one and talked about his direction of the crimes that Cohen goes to prison for, uh, Bill Barr, then the attorney general, um, 
Donald Trump's attorney general was not bullish on continuing the investigation and gave a stand down order. That office is notoriously independent, though, and it's interesting to think about why they they might not have decided to go their own way, despite what the attorney general said, or even to um, reopen the case after Joe Biden became president. And look, I'm speculating here, so let me be clear about that. But that office, the Southern District of New York office, has a very rigid policy about cooperating witnesses. In order to become a cooperating witness, you have to reveal information about all the crimes that you're familiar with. And there was some reporting that Michael Cohen, who would have been a key, if not the key witness, was not willing to do that. Perhaps there were some issues involving taxi medallions or other individuals, but ultimately they realized that Cohen would not be completely forthcoming and their policy is not to put a cooperating witness on the witness stand in that situation. That would explain um, why that case would be, as prosecutors say, dead right there. And last question about venue, because some of these decisions were made in the Oval Office, why is the venue New York and not, say, Washington, D.C.? Well, you know, it's it's a good question, but I don't think a venue argument goes very far on this case because the business is conducting its work in New York. Um, And there's there is a clearly a strong tie to Manhattan in this case that I think substantiates venue, which is the choice of what district he can be prosecuted in. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Let's move to uh, Georgia. What should we expect in terms of the future indictments in the state of Georgia? And, you know, people like Lindsey Graham have been subpoenaed and um, the whole cohort. I mean, I, one of the things that was missing, I thought was missing that jumped, let me not say missing, but jumped out to me that was absent in New York was a lack of a conspiracy charge. Will we see something like that in Georgia? How does this play out? Yeah, you know, it's such a good question. I, I too have wondered why we didn't get a conspiracy charge in New York. I suspect it's because it's a misdemeanor conspiracy and they had a statute of limitations problem. It's a two year statute on a on a misdemeanor conspiracy charge there. I don't think that when we um, get our first look at Fonnie Willis's indictment, the Fulton County District Attorney, that conspiracy will be missing. I think it will be front and center. Um, she's brought in a lot of people in the grand jury. You know, to me, as a federal prosecutor, I typically did not bring my targets in front of the grand jury to testify um, unless they really wanted to, in which case we always graciously provided them with that opportunity. But it's tough to read how expansive her conspiracy is. Who's a cooperating witness? Who's a target? Who's not a target? She sent out just shy of 20 target letters, but many of them went to people in Georgia's political hierarchy. And presumably she's got two related 
but in some senses, separate cases. One involves the fake slate of electors in Georgia, efforts in Georgia to change the outcome of the vote. Mm -hmm. And then one involves this Donald Trump you know, led charge, right, where Trump calls Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, and says, hey, buddy, I need you to find me the votes that, that I'm missing so that I can pull this one out. Sounds like I fraud. Think yeah. It does. It absolutely sounds like election interference. Um, let me say I, I have not studied Georgia law as extensively as I should, but I have read through the statutes. I see again in Georgia a lot of misdemeanor charges. I think that it's very unlikely that she will indict only a misdemeanor. And so a lot of speculation centers on whether she will use um, Georgia's mini RICO statute. It's, we call it mini RICO. There's a federal statute and yeah. then many states have their own RICOs meant to address organized crime, but also um, of use in, in case where you have an ongoing sort of trajectory of criminal conduct. And if she decides to use that charge, it will be complicated, but it will give her the opportunity to put lots of kinds of evidence in front of a jury. Well, speaking of a jury, will Mary Garland and the DOJ have their day in court with Trump as well or get in front of a jury? And why has it taken so long? By the way, I think Jack Smith is actually moving at light speed. But it, it seems as if the Department of Justice has been grappling with this issue of Donald Trump for a very long period of time. You know, DOJ time moves differently than time moves in the real world. They're um, the only organization that moves slower than the United States Senate, the Department of Justice. Yes, I think that that's a fair <laughs> characterization. And of course, DOJ didn't appear to be investigating Donald Trump and people higher up in January 6th for the first year that Garland was in office. That, I think, is sort of a, a mystery to me, why why they didn't and, and what jump started them. Um, two cases. I think Jack Smith is a lot closer on the classified documents case than he is on January 6th, but he has been a black box. We don't get a lot of leaks. We do see, you know, little interesting snippets of information from time to time. This morning, there's reporting that the gang of eight in Congress is just now beginning to get um, some of the classified documents that were found not just with Trump, but also with Joe Biden, also with Mike Pence. And some of those are being disclosed to the Gang of Eight. That suggests to me that we may be close to a decision point. If if we're at the point where prosecutors are comfortable with conveying what could be evidence, depending on decisions that they're making to members of Congress, it, it suggests that we might be quite close um, on that piece of things. As far as the January 6th part, of course, Mike Pence has only just been ordered to testify before Jack Smith's grand jury. Donald Trump is going to appeal that order. You've got to talk to Mike Pence before you can make a decision about whether or not to indict if, if you're Jack Smith, the special counsel. So I think not as close I, on that I, one. I, I don't think you're going to have enough for January 6th to indict Donald Trump. I do think that Donald Trump is in a world of trouble um, and with obstructing, et cetera, and his lawyers um, in the classified documents case. The interesting thing is- I was going to say, can I push back just a tiny sure. bit on that and say, you, you know, there's been a ruling in D.C. in the last week, I think. Time is sort of starting to cloud up for me. Um, but a, a ruling that permits in some of the January 6th, um, let's just say protester, for lack of a better word, those cases, um, to charge them with interfering with the um, functioning of Congress. That ruling is important because it opens up for prosecutors a landscape for charging Trump. And, and I think that they may actually get there. So that's my pushback. Because they because the ruling 
if it did not go the way it did, it would have vacated hundreds of misdemeanor charges for those protesters. Isn't that correct? So the interference, the obstruction of of a um, governmental body is is a felony charge. A lot of the folks related to January 6th have misdemeanor charges. The reason it impacts Trump so directly is it's tough to prove, in my mind, the insurrection charge because you have to prove that he had the intent to use violence to, to maintain that charge. I think the you know conspiracy to interfere with con- Congress um, certifying the Electoral College vote, I think that's actually a place that they may get, depending on how good their evidence is, depending on people like Mark Meadows, depending on whether somebody like John Eastman might decide to cooperate. The, you know, lots of variables, and we just don't know what they're getting in their investigation. Last question. What does this all mean for candidate Trump? Can he be in court and be a candidate at the same time? What if he's convicted? Can he still be president of the United States? Everybody asks me these questions, so I'll, I'll flip them to you. Yeah, so um, it's incredible to think that we could have a presidency from inside of a prison, right? But the con- I mean, the Constitution sets requirements for being president, and they involve age and being a natural-born citizen, and they don't say anything about not being under indictment, not being convicted, not being in prison while you're serving. So, yes, theoretically, that could happen. But I have to say I have more confidence in the common sense of American voters than that. You know, it's American voters that have delivered the verdict on Trump so far, not prosecutors. They did it in 2020 when they refused to return him to office. I'm confident that that will happen again in 2024. Joyce Vance, you're brilliant. Um, your experience speaks loudly in your words. Thank you so much for your time and joining the Bakari Sellers podcast today. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, tell you, this gonna be 